For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, and welcome to another podcast. That's PA with a silent G, as we learned last week. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ, and I'm John Castanet. I welcome you to another edition of uh, an excursion into our discussion on the book of Revelation. Today we're going to be talking about Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 6. This is essentially John's salutation to the seven churches. Now I previously did podcasts um, on November 5 and 12 of 2023. They're podcast numbers uh, 6 and 7 in the Come Follow Me curriculum where I discussed many of the geopolitical conditions of the seven churches. And so as we begin John's formal salutation to those seven churches, if you want to get more context about the history of these seven churches, you can go back and review those podcasts and you'll get information about them. And as we go along, we'll, we'll be getting more information, but uh, that's a good place to start our discussion. And uh, that's where we're beginning today. So we begin today with uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, which states, quote, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So now we want to first begin talking about John's identification of himself to the seven churches. And you'll note that he does it by first name only. And uh, this has raised some questions uh, early on in terms of the authorship of the book of Revelation. And it would have been more direct if he had kind of given us some uh, additional information such as uh, hi it's john i'm the son of zebedee uh, this is what the isaiah did when he wrote his book he introduced himself as isaiah the son of amos and jeremiah likewise introduced himself as the son of hilkiah and so uh, he leaves a little bit in doubt he also could have said something like uh, howdy it's John, the brother of James, or howdy, it's John of Galilee. We don't know his exact birthplace. <laughs> I can't tell you exactly where he's from, other than to say we know he was from uh, Galilee. Also, he could have said, uh, howdy, it's uh, John the Beloved. However, that may not have been particularly helpful at the time that he wrote uh, the book of Revelation, because John the Beloved, of course, comes from his gospel, which hadn't been written at the time that John got his vision on the island of Patmos. Uh, likewise, and, and perhaps finally, John could have said, Howdy, it's uh, John, I'm one of the sons of thunder, the Bonerges, which uh, is referred to in Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 54. Uh, that came about, of course, when uh, Jesus and his disciples were in Samaria and some of the Samaritans were reviling the Savior, and John's solution to the problem was to uh, call down fire on them from heaven. <laughs> so uh, that's where he got his name, the uh, <clears throat> Son of Thunder. It's uh, a title, sort of, that uh, 
this coincides a little bit with the uh, title when Ezekiel introduced himself where people came to understand him as Ezekiel the priest. And here we have basically John, a son of thunder. Uh, now the fact that he only introduces himself by his first name may suggest a, a couple of things. First of all, it may suggest that his apostolic position was well known. So we're not just talking about John, we're talking about the John. And uh, the other thing that we can observe about the use of his first name and the fact that he doesn't say, hi, I'm John the Apostle, is uh, this is consistent with the humility and modesty expressed in his gospel where there was no claim of office. Um, he, in fact, introduces himself in uh, Revelation 1.9 as John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. And so uh, this is expressive of the fact that even though he held a high and holy calling within the church, he considered himself pretty much on par with uh, everyone else who was... Uh, members of the church at that time. And so the fact again, once again, that he only identifies himself by first name only may suggest that he was well known. And that would be particularly true among the seven churches to whom he was writing in Asia Minor and in particular in Ephesus because that was the place of John's residence. Now the uh, focus we want to look at a little bit with regard to Revelation 1-4 is the fact that he's writing to these seven churches which are in Asia. And we need to talk just a little bit about what we mean when we talk about Asia because this refers to Asia Minor or what is known as the Lydian or proconsular Asia. So it's, it's not like we're talking about the continent of Asia. So we're going to put up a map of uh, the uh, European area and going down into Turkey in the, the lower right hand corner you can see where it shows uh, the area of Asia Minor. So essentially, if you look at Turkey, that western half of Turkey is the area of what we're referring to as Asia Minor. You, so it would have the Black Sea on the north, the Aegean Sea on the west, and then the Mediterranean Sea to the south. Now the reference to proconsular Asia is a geopolitical area or a senatorial province governed by a Roman proconsul and it consisted of the separate countries of, at, at the time these names would have been well known, who knows what they are really today uh, because the borders were difficult and they sometimes shifted around a little bit and so it wasn't even clear to the ancients what countries were part of Asia Minor, but the names of them were Phrygia, Mycia, Korea, and a part of um, the uh, Lydian area as well as the coastal islands. And so Ephesus was the seat of the proconsul government, and uh, it essentially was right near the coast of modern Turkey. And uh, just to throw in Patmos Island and its proximity. Uh, it's about 25 some miles to the west of Ephesus. So the Chephan churches are located in a coastal area of Lydia near the Aegean Sea. And this area probably had about 50 Jewish communities at the time uh, that the book of Revelation was written. And the estimates are that there were probably about 2 million Jews living in uh, this area at the time. 
Now, proconsul, uh, the proconsulship of Asia was probably the most prized proconsulship in all of the Roman Empire. It had a great deal of wealth and a very advanced culture. And the way that it actually came into the Roman Empire was by way of a uh, bequeath or inheritance, if you will, because the, uh, the area was controlled by King Attalus III, who was the king of Pergamos, and uh, he had no male heirs, and frankly, he didn't have much interest in running this kingdom to begin with. He liked things like the study of medicine and gardening, and so he would have gotten along well with my wife. She loves to garden, too. And so uh, the uh, when Attalus uh, was getting ready to die, he basically created a will that bequeathed to the Roman Empire uh, all of this area of Asia Minor, and that occurred in 138 BC, and that seems a little crazy, but there was a method to his madness because he, he figured the Romans were going to take it anyway, so why not avoid all the bloodshed, and, and that's probably pretty accurate. He probably had it pretty dead on. Uh, excuse the pun, the dead and the bequeathing, but at any rate, um, <clears throat> and, and in fact it did, and so uh, there was some controversy by an heir apparent who claimed he should be entitled a, a brother or something like that, but uh, ultimately with very little uh, a scandal in the scandal sheets, uh, the uh, area of Asia Minor went to the Romans as they were building their empire, and that became part of the Roman Empire. Now, by way of uh, a brief overview of these seven cities, uh, you'll recall that I did the two podcasts that I mentioned previously, and I wanted to also uh, let you know that one of the things that uh, my wife and I are trying to do in April of this year is to travel to these seven cities. And so my hope is that uh, between April and May, um, I'll be able to go over there, uh, get pictures, do some video logs, uh, and we'll post them on my website and uh, probably on YouTube, I assume that's the way these things go. Um, and so you can look forward to that. We're looking forward to it. You probably won't look forward to it as much as we are, but uh, you know, with some of the current conflicts going on over there in the Middle East, that uh, travel plans are somewhat uh, subject to the conditions, but that's our goal. And hopefully we'll make it and uh, give you a lot more information about these uh, seven cities in addition to the podcast that I will be doing coming up. So with regard to the seven cities, I'm going to put up a map uh, that shows the uh, proximity of the seven cities in the area. And you can see them, how you've got uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos kind of near the uh, coastal areas going from south to north. And uh, Pergamos is the northernmost city. And then you've got Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea kind of coming back toward the south. But more on uh, the inland routes. And these are things that I describe in the two podcasts that I mentioned to you earlier, podcast number six and number seven. And so all of these seven churches in these seven cities were founded by Paul many years earlier in his third missionary journey. So that's kind of how they came to exist. Now, as we move on to our discussion of uh, other content in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, we have a familiar greeting that was used uh, by, the, uh, by the Hebrews, and it says, Grace be unto you and peace. 
So that's a pretty customary thing. You find it in the epistles of Peter. You find it in the epistles of Paul, as well as John, who adopt the same form of salutation. And it embraces both a Greek and Hebrew form of salutation. So if you look at the Hebrew form, it goes all the way back to, for example, Daniel 4.1, where the Assyrian king's royal proclamation in that verse began with, quote, peace be multiplied unto you. If you look in 1 Samuel 25.6, where David sent an emissary to Nabal saying, quote, peace be unto you, and peace be to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. So these are kind of familiar greetings. Now, if you look at uh, Cecil B. DeMille's 1959 classic, The Ten Commandments, you have the scene where Moses meets Jethro. I call it the, the giggling girls scene. <laughs> and that's because as they come into the tent of Jethro, of course, his daughters are coming in and they're all giggling because uh, they find that Moses is very attractive. And my wife can't stand that scene, by the way. She hates the giggling girl scene. But at any rate, you get in the scene, Moses introduces himself to um, Jethro and says, I'm Moses, son of Amran and Yoshebel, health, prosperity, life to you. Jethro of Midian. So if uh, Cecil B. DeMille's uh, Ten Commandments is uh, any proof of uh, greetings of a historical type, there you have it. So you could take that for what it's worth. Now, the use of the word grace in the greeting, of course, means favor. It is, it's an ardent wish for all the mercies and favors of God for time and all eternity. And it implies this sort of invocation that I pray or I desire that grace may be conferred on you. And so that's kind of what you're getting in this greeting from John as he uh, salutes the seven churches. He also makes a reference to peace, the idea of invoking peace upon the people, which is freedom from war. It's a condition of safety, of prosperity. It also denotes a reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And so this essence is that Christ is the source of all true and lasting prosperity and peace. Then moving on to the next phrase in this same verse, uh, there is this reference uh, from him which is and which was and which is to come. And this is a name or title for Jesus Christ. It appears four times in the book of Revelation. And it's a rather remarkable violation of grammar that we would call a solecism, meaning it's an intentional error that has been made in the grammatical form of the sentence. But it's important to note that this was intended. Um, but <clears throat> essentially, if you look at it and you read it and you say, well, it doesn't sound particularly bad because we're all kind of used to it now, uh, the form that you see. But if you were to ask someone, who are you? And they would reply, I'm him which is, you, you'd think, what, where are you coming from? Are you on drugs or something? And you say, you just walk away because he's crazy. <laughs> so that's essentially what this sounds like when you kind of put it into a modern context. And so now, if you slept through all your high school English classes, uh, you might start to glaze over with your eyes a little bit. So you hit your fast forward or go to two times speed if you're not there already, because I'm going to talk about what the grammatical problem is with this sentence, and uh, it may put you to sleep. <laughs>
<laughs> so at any rate, this is going to be a discussion of what they refer to as the nominative and genitive cases. That is, from him who is, who was, and is who is to come. Now, the Joseph Smith translation uh, ch helps out a little bit with the grammar because in the original King James Version, it talks about grace coming from Christ and then describes him using the name title, which is, which was, which is to come. And again, the Joseph Smith translation of that same verse improves it a little bit by changing the word which into the word who. And so in the, the JST, we get from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So it helps out a little bit, but it really doesn't cor correct the, uh, the grammar problem. So the him who is, is the nominative case and in proper grammar it would need to be followed by a genitive and a genitive is some type of characteristic a trait or source of being so for example if we have just the nominative we have him who is and if we add a genitive to it it would mean him who is the son of god and so it's added to that with some type of descriptive clause that helps us understand who he really is. So it's not just him who is, it just kind of leaves you hanging. But if you say him who is the son of God, then that's helpful. That, that completes the sentence in, in a more proper grammatical form. By the same token, if we say him who was, that's the nominative. If we had the genitive, it would be something like him who was the God of the Old Testament. And then, of course, you have the him who is to come, which really is pretty close to coming in with something that's pretty good because the him who is, it adds the genitive to come on its own. So that one's not quite so bad. And so this is the how we kind of cure the problem. But the reason why John uses this very poor grammar is because we're trying to underscore the idea that um, he is the one. He who is, was, will come. The focus remains on him. So that without any description of who he is, you kind of imply that, oh, we all know who he is. It's self-obvious who is, who was, who is to come, and therefore we don't need the genitives. And so by leaving them out, you actually focus more on who that he is, and that being namely Jesus Christ, and uh, that God uh, is always the subject of him, all right? And so it denotes his self-existence, it denotes his self-being, the eternal one. Uh, <clears throat> he is self-contained without any outside explanation or modifier in the form of a genitive. And so uh, something that uh, cannot be changed, we say it is what it is. And that's the essence of what is going on here by not including any of these genitives to explain or expound upon the nominative. So on Mount Sinai, for example, Jehovah gave his name to Moses as I am that I am. And that tends to be rather circular but the focus, again, is on the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, who was, is now, and will be in the future. And so this, uh, these words uh, 
probably originally come from the Tetragrammaton, which is the Yehovah in Hebrew. And since Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, uh, it would be the Y-H-W-H. That's the Tetragrammaton. That's the ineffable name of Jehovah, God of the Old Testament, that would be verbalized one day a year in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And so the, the Tetragrammaton and the words that we've been looking at express the meaning of the Hebrew name Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the anglicized form. And this particular name title, if you're reading the Old Testament, it's going to appear as the word Lord in all caps. So if you see that word in the Old Testament, that is the Lord in all caps, that is essentially the name Jehovah and the manner in which the uh, the editors of the uh, Old Testament and the King James Version wrote that word down in particular. So essentially what we have here is all of the states of existence, both past, present, and future, are incorporated into these concepts of who is, who was, and who is to come. In Revelation 1.18, you find it restated in the phrase, quote, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then you have similar expressions in Revelation 1.8, where he refers to himself as Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. In Revelation 1.11, you have him identifying himself as the first and the last. And in Moses 1.3, uh, the Savior identifies himself then Jehovah as endless is my name. And so all of these names are essentially synonymous with what we've been talking about with the very poor grammar used by John in the book of Revelation in Revelation 1-4. Essentially the essence is he is the Lord of the past, he is Lord of the present, and he is Lord of the future. Now it's also kind of interesting because that name title has its antithesis in the beast that we will uh, run into in uh, Revelation 13 and 17, whether you like it or not, he's coming. And in Revelation 17, 8, there's kind of a play on words where it describes the beast using an opposite type of grammar and grammatical form than what is used to describe the Savior. So in Revelation 17, 8, it says the beast that was and is not and yet is. And so you can see how those kind of play together and how they then mirror each other but in very opposite directions. Alright, so as we move on, the next phrase in Revelation 1-4 talks about the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now this is the subject of multiple different kinds of interpretations about who these seven spirits are. Some of them see them as heavenly angels, including the seven archangels of Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Uriel, Raguel, Sariel, and Remiel. Okay, so those are the seven archangels. You know that notice that all of them their names end in E-L, which means God, or is the name of the singular name of God. Elohim would be plural, but El would be singular for God. And so all of these archangels, it's not coincidental that all of them end with the word or the letters E-L representing a uh, being as representatives of uh, the Lord God. And so some other people interpret these seven spirits as a symbol of the Holy Ghost. So they, they take the number seven, 
which of course is a symbolic number of wholeness and fullness and completeness and couple that with the uh, concept of the Spirit or the Holy Ghost and say from that they derive the concept that this is the fullness of the Holy Spirit and others say that the uh, it's the sevenfold effect of the manifold gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and those are good ways to try and approach the concept of who these seven spirits are it's a it's kind of a correct view but an incorrect conclusion because uh, it's clarified in the Joseph Smith translation that these seven spirits are actually seven servants. So now if I put up on the screen a comparison of the text from the King James Version in Revelation 1-4, and that's on the left-hand side of your screen, and then on the right-hand side of the screen, we've got the Joseph Smith translation. So for those of you who are driving, my uh, brother-in-law Paul, uh, I'll read to you what is on the left-hand side, and then I'll read what the, the changes are in the JST. So in the King James Version, we have John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Okay, that's the King James Version. On the right side, we get this. Now this is the testimony of John to the seven servants who are over the seven churches in Asia. So there's a big change there, as you can see. That, that's a pretty big addition, but there's a specific reference to these seven servants. Then it continues, Grace unto you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then this is another fairly significant change that identifies these seven spirits as essentially the seven servants or bishops, if you will, over the seven churches. And it says, Who has sent forth his angel from before his throne to testify unto those who are the seven servants over the seven churches. Now these seven, these seven servants appear in multiple places throughout the book of Revelation. So we find them in this verse. We'll find them again at the beginning of chapter 3. We'll find them again in the uh, start of John's vision of celestial paradise in Revelation 4. And in all cases, the Joseph Smith translation changes these, refer these references of seven spirits to the seven servants. And essentially they are the local leaders of these uh, seven churches. And so the designation of the seven leaders may suggest that they had their calling and election made sure. So uh, that might be one reason why uh, they're referred to as the seven spirits. Okay, so that kind of concludes our discussion of Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. We're now ready to move on to Revelation 1 5, which states as follows, quote, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now what's kind of interesting about this particular verse where it starts out talking about Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, it sounds like he's saying he's a faithful witness of himself, which brings to mind uh, the Gospel of John chapter 5 verse 31 that says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So it's a, a tenant of Jewish law that no man's unsupported witness of himself was sufficient. 
And so this sounds like it has a problem here in verse 5 because it sounds like Jesus is essentially proclaiming himself uh, to be and using his own faithful witness to testify of himself. This problem is actually resolved in the Joseph Smith translation version of 1.5, which says, quote, Therefore I, John, the faithful witness, bear record of the things which were delivered me of the angel and from Jesus Christ. And so you can see there's a huge difference in these two where the King James Version suggests that Christ is being his own faithful witness and the JST where essentially John is the faithful witness bearing record of things which were delivered, etc., etc. So John is the faithful witness, and it essentially came to mean <clears throat> one who attests the truth by suffering or being a martyr. So that's what it means to be a faithful witness. It is a witness to the truth by personal endurance. And John's witness is matched by the witness of Christ and the angel who delivers the message. Thus, we have a dual attestation of the angel and the Lord that fulfills the law of witnesses found in Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. And similarly, in the New Testament, that law is repeated, that the law of witnesses in Matthew 18.16, which says, quote, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established, close quote. The law of witnesses as used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament obviously applied in what we would call criminal cases where someone had violated the Mosaic law and uh, were to be tried and it was necessary that they have two witnesses for any conviction and the meeting out of any punishment, but it also applied in civil contracts as well, that you had to have two witnesses to enforce a civil contract, which brings to my, I, I have to digress here and I have to tell you a story. Uh, and I just can't help myself about this concept of having two witnesses to a civil contract because I was involved in a case. It was Manzar Kayum versus Muhammad Arshad. It was the name of the case. And it was a case that uh, I filed in Yolo County in uh, the state of California. And what it concerned was a partnership agreement that these two men had entered into in uh, about November of 2012. And so I was representing Manzar, who was the plaintiff in the case. And these two got together and they uh, came to an, an agreement. It was written down in which Arshad, who uh, by all rights was probably the richest man in Pakistan, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's no kidding. It's uh, he he paid more taxes. He had a lot of rice mills and other things like that. Um, and one time we were taking Manzar's deposition in the case, and he I I had his financial statements and other information and banking records and stuff like that. And Manzar said, "Oh yeah, he's the richest guy in Pakistan, and uh, he got an award." For paying the most taxes in the country of Pakistan one year. <laughs> and we're all sitting around kind of laughing at what you, the, you get an award for paying the most taxes and maybe it's something the IRS can try out. Uh, you know you start giving awards for big taxpayers and uh, pretty soon it's a great incentive for people to want to pay more taxes I'm sure. <laughs> but at any rate so Arshad was very very wealthy and he purchased some property in Yolo County 
for $2.5 million. And the, the deal was, is that Mar Arshad would put up the money, Manzar would work the land. It's about 500 acres or something like that. It's agricultural land with fruit trees and some fruit trees. That, and the goal was they were gonna develop it into orchards. And uh, Manzar was going to work for four years, doesn't get any pay, but at the end of the four years, they're gonna sell the property and then Arshad gets his original um, investment back and then the two of them will split the profits with 70% going to Manzar and 30% going to Arshad. And so this was the deal. And the, the contract was uh, signed by the two men and it was also witnessed by this guy by the name of Rashid. And uh, he writes his signature and, uh, and uh, signs the thing. <clears throat> well, interestingly enough, between 2012 and 2016, the land value jumped by over $7 million. <laughs> and so this was going to entitle Manzar to almost $5 million. So as the four years approaches uh, and it's time to value the property and, and sell it or do whatever they're going to do, Arshad basically denies the existence of the agreement. Says, I don't have a deal with you. And of course, Arshad had the original contract. Uh, Manzar had a copy of it, but Arshad had the original and he just denies that it exists. So eventually the, the simple solution here, of course, is to just take the deposition of Rashid, have him confirm, yes, I'm the witness and we're in good shape, right? So I take the deposition thinking this is going to be a short deposition. He's supposedly a friendly witness. I mean, he, he literally drove in the same car with Manzar to the deposition. They're good friends. And uh, so he sits down and uh, during the deposition, I said, okay, here's the agreement. Are you familiar with this? Yes, I've seen it before. And is that your signature? Yes, it is. And uh, I said, did you sign this agreement? He said, yes, I did sign it. And I'm thinking, okay we're set. I got a great case here. <laughs> the next thing that comes out of his mouth is, but I didn't sign it in 2012. I don't think I signed it in 2012. I think I signed it several years later. <laughs> and so all of a sudden the whole case just blew up in one answer that he's basically saying, yeah, Manzar basically put this agreement in front of me four years after the fact. I signed it. I didn't really pay much attention to it, blah, blah, blah. And so now the case is just in a, in a shambles and so uh, I took a little break in the deposition I had a little chat with my client that I can't really discuss but needless to say I'm sitting here wondering what just happened <laughs> and so I go back into the deposition and now he's become an adverse witness and so uh, which I really wasn't prepared to deal with but I started asking questions and I so I asked him some questions have you ever met Arshad he says, yeah. And I said, when, when did you uh, last see or talk to Arshad? Turns out he'd been to Pakistan three weeks before his deposition and met with Arshad. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to put two and two together. And it became pretty obvious that what had happened is our witness to the contract had gone to Pakistan three weeks before the deposition, had met with Arshad, and had worked out a deal that if he would change his testimony, um, Arshad would cut him in for some of these profits. So he, he bought off the witness, essentially, is what I concluded uh, must have happened, and they, they made this deal. Well, fast forward about a year later, uh, Arshad is murdered by his oldest son in Pakistan. 
So you didn't expect that one, right? That kind of comes out of left field. But yeah, so Arshad is with his children one evening in Pakistan, and his oldest son was saying, hey, Dad, I want some of my inheritance. I want you to give me some of the money that I'm going to get. And, he, and Arshad's response to that is, you're not going to get anything from in your inheritance until I'm dead. <laughs> Wrong answer, because the oldest son pulled out a gun and shot him. And he died right there on the spot. Shot right there on the spot. And uh, the oldest son also shot his brother, who lived an extra day, but eventually died in the hospital. Well, that this is the craziest case. This is why I got to tell you this story because it's such a crazy case. But at any rate, of course, once Arshad is dead, the deal that Rashid had with Arshad to testify favorably for Arshad kind of goes out the window. He's lost his trading partner. And now, after Arshad was murdered, we start hearing word and rumors that Rashid thinks he made a mistake when he gave his prior deposition testimony. <laughs> and, so, and so eventually, we take his deposition again. And sure enough, and, and I'm only giving you like a tenth of the details of, of everything that happened that eventually leads to taking of this second deposition but yes during the second deposition he essentially recanted his earlier testimony so I think I just made a mistake I think I did sign that thing back in 2012 and you should have seen the attorneys on the other side they just going crazy the same way I was going crazy when Rashid came up with this cockamamie story about signing it four years after the fact um, and so at any rate the, the lesson to be learned from all of this in regard to this concept of the law of witnesses where you're supposed to have two witnesses the lesson we learn if I would have had two witnesses neither of whom are named Rashid in my case <laughs> we would have been in good shape uh, but I, I just had to tell you that story because when I think of the law of witnesses I think of this case and it's 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 all true I mean I uh, prepared the case and it was a the case was in a shambles because you've got this witness who's just you know he's all over the map and uh, so we eventually settled it in a confidential uh, settlement that I can't really discuss but uh, needless to say he created a big mess for us when uh, he testified uh, the first time so at any rate uh, moving on uh, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 it refers to Jesus Christ as the first begotten of the dead and both the uh, JST and the King James Version identify Christ as the first begotten of the dead. And in Colossians 1.18, it describes it similarly saying, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And this correlates to Colossians 1.15, where Christ is also identified as the firstborn of every creature. And this gets back into this concept uh, of the order of creation and the fact that Jesus, who was Jehovah, is the firstborn in the spirit creation, which means by way of parallel and the uh, correlation that exists between the order of creation and the order of resurrection, that the firstborn in the spirit creation then becomes the firstborn from the dead uh, in the order of resurrection. And what you find also in Psalms 89:27, this statement that, quote, I will make him my firstborn 
higher than the kings of the earth. And so noting, note that this is in the uh, future tense in the book of Psalms, pointing to the resurrection of Christ and the fact that the firstborn of the spirit would be resurrected to be higher than the kings of the earth. Now, we need to get into this context of what is referred to here as the kings of the earth because a lot of times this uh, term is used to describe mortal kings who tend to be wicked and, and evil but have control of nations and so the rulers and nations uh, in various periods of time. But the kings of the earth can also be a reference to exalted kings and queens, which we're going to encounter when we discuss uh, Revelation 1-6, which is the next verse coming up. But essentially, what you have here is this concept of the king of kings who bestows powers of life and kingship on those who follow. And so those who are worthy of exaltation become subordinate kings to the king of kings, and in them then is bestowed the power of life, the continuation of seed, etc. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about as we move into the next verse. But here essentially we're talking about the idea uh, of Christ being the first begotten of the dead and the fact that there was no resurrection of any other creature in this generation until Christ was the first fruit. Now I emphasize the concept of this generation because of course creation is multi-generational which we again will get into in some more detail in the next verse and so when we talk about the fact that there was no resurrection and that Christ was the first begotten of the dead that obviously cannot apply to the generations before this generation. By this generation, I'm referring to the generation of the spirit children of God who is our Heavenly Father. But God, of course, was a resurrected being. We know that. That's a, that's a matter of doctrine in the church. And so Christ cannot be the first begotten of the dead in all generations because if that were true it was mean it would mean that he was resurrected ahead of his own father even and so this is a generational kind of concept where Christ was the first begotten of the dead in his generation meaning the spirit creations of his father whom Jesus Christ then recreates in their physical form and in their temporal form all the spirits who are made physical through the creations of Jesus Christ in this generation, they eventually will resurrect. But among them, Christ was the first begotten of the dead. And that's what that all means. So Christ is not only, by the way, first in time in this generation. He is also first in rank. So he who was the greatest of all God's spirit creations, being the first and the first in rank, is also for the same reasons, the first fruit of them that slept and the first begotten of the dead, both in time and in first in rank. So the, it expresses both a uh, this idea of supremacy as well as chronologically being first. And so now as we continue on, it also says that Christ is the prince of the kings of the earth. And a prince is a ruler or leader, someone who is first in rank. It is someone who is heir to a throne who is not yet invested with absolute sovereignty because he's still a prince. But here, the prince exercises dominion 
over the rulers of the earth. And in Daniel 9.25, which is part of the 70 weeks prophecy that I talk about in podcast number 9 uh, from November 26, that particular verse in Daniel 9.25 refers to him as Messiah, the Prince and so, uh, again, this concept that Christ is a prince uh, finds uh, relevance in other parts of the, uh, the Old Testament as well. In the New Testament and in other scriptures, we find a number of references to um, Jesus Christ being a prince or a king. For example, in the Joseph Smith translation of 1 Timothy 6.15, it says he is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords to whom be honor and power everlasting. In Revelation 15:3, the Savior is referred to as King of Saints. In Revelation 17:14, he's referred to as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And we find that same designation in Revelation 19:16. And in Moses 7:53, he's referred to as the King of Zion, and in Psalms 24:7 as the King of Glory. So all of these are references to Jesus Christ, who is both a prince and a king over the kings of the earth. So the word, the, the word king itself, as used in the New Testament, comes from the Greek word archon or archon in Revelation 1.5. It's rendered a magistrate in other places in the New Testament, but it essentially means one who is first in power and hence a prince. Now we distinguish this word from the Greek word strategos, which is re rendered magistrate in some other places, but that word typically signifies the leader of an army, army or a general or one having military authority. So king refers to more than just the earthly leaders of nations. This kingship as described in the names that I read off to you a moment ago are Christ being a ruler over a heavenly realm, over angels and his servants and those who are subordinate uh, to the kings of the uh, prince. And so all of those kind of play into this concept of what it means for Christ to be a king and a prince, including a prince of the kings of the earth. Now, <clears throat> the next phrase in Revelation 1.5 talks about the fact that Christ washed us from our sins in his own blood. And this is an obvious reference to the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Now some Bible manuscripts change this and rather than saying that we are washed from our sins in his blood, the other Bible manuscripts say that people are loosed or freed from their sins in his blood rather than being washed from their sins. And according to one uh, source, there is a one-letter difference between the two Greek words, and that's why some of them say washed, and some of them say loose. So depending upon who you ask, one is preferred over the other, but both are good metaphors. So if we have the metaphor of being washed from our sins in the blood of Christ, this would be a metaphor of a sin as a stain that is then cleansed. And, and what's significant about that is if you ask my wife, um, you know, whenever I have some kind of a cut and I get some blood on my clothes and I, <laughs> I come in the house and show her I got some blood on my clothes, including white shirts, she, what are you doing? This, this is so hard to get out. And you know, you gotta rush it right in and get it out of there as quick as possible, uh, which I think is a really good metaphor. 
um, for several reasons. First of all, my wife tells me that if you try and get the blood out quickly before it kind of sets in, the stain is much easier to, to get out. Um, and that's a good metaphor for repentance. Before you get in too far, uh, if you've committed a sin or a transgression, if you address it more quickly, uh, it doesn't have the chance to set in, in which case it gets harder to remove that stain in your life. The other thing is the fact that uh, you're removing some type of sin with blood, which, you know, in, in temporal terms, the blood is the worst thing. It's the worst possible kind of cleanser. It just doesn't make any sense. And so it's this paradox that essentially, and a paradox is essentially something that seemingly can't be true, but is true. And that's the case with the cleansing power of Christ's blood, that paradoxically, it seems like blood could never clean anything. It is the thing that stains our clothes. And yet, the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ is the very thing that will remove any stain from our person. And so it's a really good metaphor. The other side of this metaphor or the concept of being loosed from sin rather than being washed from sin, it, take, it gives the notion that sin is like a chain that has to be removed. So to be loosed implies both the removal of sin and the deliverance from the bondage of sin. And so it, it is, it's a nice little metaphor, and it kind of tends to include the concept that you have to be rid of the sin. There has to be this deliverance, uh, and when that happens, then you are freed from the bondage of sin. But it also has the implication that there has to be some type of cleansing. And this is a metaphor that is fairly common in the Book of Mormon, where there's this discussion of the bands of death and the chains of hell that tend to incorporate the images of uh, cleansing as well. So as we move on now to Revelation 1.6, this is a very, very interesting verse. It's a fascinating verse that gets lots of commentary and differences of opinion in terms of its meaning. But this verse says, quote, And he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So essentially this is a statement that Christ is making us kings and priests. Um, and I alluded to that in my discussion of the last verse. And the way that this occurs, of course, is through the washing and loosing power of his atonement. And the, this statement is repeated in Revelation 5.10 that where it talks about he hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I'm going to do something here in my discussion of what the meaning of this verse is by simply quoting a number of people who have commented on the meaning of this verse. I find their words to be very powerful, and rather than me telling you what the meaning is, uh, I'm sure you take everything I say as gospel, but nevertheless, I felt it was important to talk in terms of what other people have said about this verse. And I'm here speaking specifically of the phraseology that says, He hath made us kings and priests, and specifically, unto God and his Father. What does this phrase, unto God and his Father, really mean? And so I'm going to quote several people uh, as to what they have to say in this regard. And the first one is uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, found in Mormon Doctrine, and it says this, quote, 
Holders of the Melchizedek priesthood have power to press forward in righteousness, living by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God, magnifying their callings, going from grace to grace, until, through the fullness of the ordinances of the temple, they receive the fullness of the priesthood and are ordained kings and priests. Those so attaining shall have exaltation and be kings, priests, rulers, and lords in their respective spheres in the eternal kingdoms of the great king who is God our Father, citing Revelation 1.6 and 5.10. Okay, so here we have Elder McConkie talking about what it takes for us to become kings and priests within the meaning of what John is talking about here in Revelation 1.6. And it, it essentially is those who go to the temple and receive the sealing ordinance are qualified to become kings and priests if they are worthy of their covenants. That is what you are ordained for as you go to the temple to receive your exalting ordinance, to be kings and priests queens and priestesses, so we don't want to leave them out. Specifically, Heber C. Kimball said this with regard to the uh, the sisters who qualify for the same things that the brethren qualify, and he said, quote, You all say that we are to become a kingdom of kings and priests, of queens and priestesses, and the Bible supports this doctrine, close quote. So that's the idea and the concept of uh, kingship. Now I want to quote another individual by the name of Albert Barnes. I've quoted him before. He was a theologian that lived uh, in the years from 1798 to 1870, and he's not a member of the church, but he nailed it pretty close dead on, the very doctrine that we have in the church. And so you don't have to be a member of the church and think that this doctrine is unique to the Latter-day Saints, because it's not. Uh, and so uh, this is what he had to say, quote, And hath made us kings and priests unto God. In 1 Peter 2.9, the same idea is expressed by saying of Christians that they are a royal priesthood. The quotation in both places is from Exodus 19.6, quote, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, close quote. This idea is expressed here by saying that Christ had made us, in fact, kings and priests. That is, Christians are exalted to the dignity and are invested with the office implied in these words. The word kings, as applied to them, refers to the exalted rank and dignity which they will have, to the fact that they, in common with their Savior, will reign triumphant over all enemies, and that, having gained a victory over sin and death and hell, they may be represented as reigning together. Close quote. So, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Albert Barnes nailed our doctrine pretty dead on. He, he uses terms that are slightly different than the kind of terms that we might use in the church, but that is a statement by a non-Latter-day Saint who is speaking in a way that is very consistent with uh, what we believe in the church. Now, <clears throat> essentially what we're going to have is this entire kingdom of exalted men and women. And let, let me now quote Sir Walter Scott, who lived from the years 1771 to 
1832. Now, the timing of his life obviously indicates that he also was not a member of the Latter-day Saint Church because the church wasn't even formed until 1830, two years before he died. But he said this uh, concerning the idea of kings and kingship. He said, quote, It might be inferred from the expression, made us a kingdom, that we are to be governed as subjects, but such is not the thought. Sovereignty is conferred upon the heavenly saints. Zechariah 6.13 states the position exactly. He shall be a priest upon his throne, but we shall reign with Christ. Close quote. Again, a very correct doctrine stated by someone who is not a member of the church. And Orson Pratt, uh, Elder Orson Pratt in the church had this to say. He said, quote, The Lord intends to make his people a kingdom of kings and priests, a kingdom unto himself, or in other words, a kingdom of gods, if they will hearken to his law. Close quote. And then Joseph Fielding Smith had this to say, quote, They have been promised that they shall become sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and if they have been true to the commandments and covenants the Lord has given us, to be kings and priests and queens and priestesses, possessing the fullness of the blessings of the celestial kingdom, close quote. So all of those quotes have to do with this uh, concept and this doctrine that uh, Christ, through his atoning sacrifice and by his washing of our sins and his loosing of our sins, through the power of the atonement, has power to make us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Now, having said that, I want to focus a little bit more specifically on this concept of what this verse is talking about when it refers to God and his Father, because there are different visions and interpretations of this vision. Some say that the reference to God and his Father must refer to Jesus Christ and then to God who is his Heavenly Father. And uh, so that's something that we have to deal with. But this verse actually says that it refers to God, the Father, and his exalted Father. Now let me repeat that. In Revelation 1.6, where it refers to God and his Father, it is referring to God, who is our Heavenly Father, and his, meaning God's, our Heavenly Father's, exalted Father. All right, And so supporting this is a statement by uh, Brigham H. Roberts, who was uh, one of the members of the Council of the uh, Seventy in the church. And he said, quote, I call special attention to the words written above in italics, unto God and his Father, which can only mean God and the Father of God, which certainly conveys the idea of a plurality of gods. And then in a footnote, he says, commenting on this text, the prophet said, quote, <clears throat> If Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and John discovered that God, the Father of Jesus Christ, had a father, you may suppose that he had a father also. Where was there ever a son without a father? And where was there ever a father without first being a son? Whenever did a tree or anything spring into existence without a progenitor? And everything comes in this way. Paul says that that which is earthly is in the likeness of that which is heavenly. Hence, if Jesus had a father, can we not believe that he had a father also? 
I despise the idea of being scared to death at such doctrine, for the Bible is full of it. Close quote. And that's the quote by Joseph uh, Smith, and that was found in the Millennial Star, a publication of the church, volume uh, 24, at page 109. And Brigham Roberts is making that quote in his book entitled The New Witnesses for God, in volume 1, uh, page 464. This concept of a plurality of gods should not be a controversial doctrine among Bible-believing Christians because, as was stated by the prophet Joseph Smith, it says the, the Bible is full of these uh, statements of plurality of gods. And I'm just going to cite a couple, three of them. If you look at 1 Corinthians 8, 5, it says, quote, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, Close quote. In Genesis 3.5, we find the reference about Adam and Eve being gods. And it says, quote, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Close quote. In John 10, chapter, uh, verses 34 and 35, it says, quote, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, close quote. Now, it's fundamental as a doctrine and probably believed by virtually all Christian denominations that the Godhead consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the Catholics, of course, would refer to this as the Trinity. But is this not a plurality of gods because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all gods within their own right and they make up the uh, the Godhead. Now in June of 1844, about 11 days before his martyrdom, uh, Joseph Smith gave a sermon in what has become known as the Sermon in the Grove in Nauvoo and he quoted Revelation one, chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 and then said, quote, it is altogether correct in the translation, close quote. And then he went on to speak about this plurality of gods and where was there ever a son without a father, etc., which is what I quoted from the Millennial Star. So that, that sermon came from his sermon in the Grove on June 16, 1844. And we can also add when was there ever a son without the father, when was there ever a daughter without a mother. And so we come into this concept that we have not only a father in heaven who are progenitors, and they would have their own progenitors, but Elder Orson F. Whitney uh, of the Council of the Twelve said this in the summer of 1906, quote, if the men and women are the children of God, sons and daughters of heavenly parents, fashioned in their image, endowed with their attributes and destined to become like them in perfection, why should it startle the world to be told that there is a mother as well as a father in heaven? It is reasonable, philosophical, and, like all truth, invulnerable. Close quote. And then we have this from Elder Orson Pratt again in his book entitled The Seer. It says, quote, The dealing of God towards his children from the time they are first born in heaven through all their successive stages of existence until they are redeemed, perfected, and made gods is a pattern 
after which all other worlds are dealt with. The father of our spirits has only been doing that which his progenitors did before him. Each succeeding generation of gods followed the example of the preceding ones. Thus will worlds and systems of worlds be multiplied in endless succession through the infinite depths of boundless space. Close quote. I find that to be a very impressive statement about this concept of uh, generational creations and uh, the fact that uh, all men and women born in pre-mortality are the literal spirit offspring of God our Heavenly Father and an eternal mother and Jesus Christ of course was the first begotten son of these heavenly parents in the premortal existence and he was the first and only begotten son of the father on the earth and so when we talk about this concept of generational creation you have to understand that uh, the same spirit children having the same parentage the direct parentage not like grandchildren and so on but direct children of the same parentage are part of the same royal generation and so as we continue our discussion going through the the book of revelation one of the reasons i'm kind of pounding on this a little bit is because you have to understand this generational concept and a lot of times when we speak of the the savior his infinite atonement uh, things like this we're talking essentially about this generation jesus christ did not atone for spirit children and people that existed in these other worlds of another generation as their savior he is the savior of our generation and in that sense his atonement is infinite as to all things that he created but these are important concepts because it comes into play in a lot of different contexts and so let me add this as to what uh, uh, the encyclopedia of mormonism states about this concept of a father in heaven mother in heaven it says quote while members of other Christian denominations may speak metaphorically of all humankind being brothers and sisters and children of God, Latter-day Saints believe it literally in the sense that a father in heaven and a mother in heaven created spirit children in a pre-mortal existence. Those spirit children born into this or other worlds as mortal men and women are therefore all of the same generation and are literally brothers and sisters children of deity among them is jesus christ who is distinct from other men and women in that he is the firstborn son of god in the spirit and the only begotten of the father in the flesh close quote so at any rate i've kind of stated that but i wanted to give you all of these quotes uh, of other people who have stated these things as matters of doctrine within the church so that we have no misunderstanding as to what it means to speak of God and his father and this concept of a plurality of gods, the patterns that exist from one generation to another. And as it has been in this generation, so shall it be also in our generation when we live our lives in conformity with the exalting ordinances and doctrines of the church and are worthy of our covenants, we will also be made kings and priests, priestesses and queens to the most high God, and we will have a continuation of seed, and we then will start our own generation. 
Now, this is a doctrine that is challenged by some outside of the church, but it makes no sense. It just To me, it makes no sense that there should be any challenge of that. Why is that not something, frankly, that you should aspire to? Uh, <laughs> and for those who don't, it's like, well, I'm sorry for you because I have loftier goals. And uh, and that's the, the matter of the truth of it. So finally, let me just talk a little bit more about this concept in Revelation 1, 6, uh, where it says, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. In this part of John's vision, he is expressing a doxology of praise for Jesus Christ. So in where I just read you, to him be glory, the him refers to Jesus Christ, not the Father, although both are discussed in the verse immediately before this, as I mentioned. So a doxology comes from the Greek word doxologia, which means a praising or giving glory. It can consist of or include a hymn or liturgical formula expressive of praise to God. So examples of this would be Luke 2.14, where you have the expression gloria in excelsis, uh, sometimes referred to or called the greater doxology. And then we have the gloria patri, which is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, worlds without end, amen. And this is referred to as the lesser doxology. In the Lord's Prayer, found in Matthew 6.13, we find the doxology expressed as, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this is the second doxology that's expressed in the book of Revelation, and it has two forms of praise. One, to him be glory, that is, light and majesty. And the second part of the doxology is to him be dominion, which is a reference to power, strength, authority to reign and to have sovereignty and so the concept of uh, having glory and dominion forever and ever is an expression that equates to to ages of ages and that means through all indefinite periods through all time and throughout eternity now we also have this doxology expressed in the Joseph Smith translation of this same verse, but he actually adds a bonus doxology, I will refer to it, and it says, quote, And unto him who loved us be glory, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. So we get our bonus doxology of glory, where it says, Unto him that loved us and who still loves us uh, be glory. And then it goes on and gives the other two again. Now, this concept that uh, we have Christ who loves us um, and who still loves us, I want to quote from Galatians 2.20 the following. It says, quote, Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, close quote. So this is an expression of the love that John was talking about that was added by the prophet in in JST Revelation 1.6, talking about his love. We find similarly in Ephesians 5, 2 and 25, it says, quote, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. In John 15.13, we have this familiar saying, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And in John 3.16, another very familiar verse, quote, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
So all of these expressions of love I find conveyed in the Joseph Smith translation um, in Revelation 1.6 where it says, unto him who loved us. All of these are things that are expressions of love. Now the other last point that I'll make on the concept of these doxologies is that, and I pointed this out before, that in the book of Revelation, the doxologies are repeated, repeated with increasing acclamation until you get to the final sevenfold doxology in Revelation 7:12. So we're going to come into the doxologies again. We we've had one already. This is the second one, and there are two of them. And then they each increase with the increasing number of doxologies until you get to the perfect number of seven in Revelation 7:12. And that says this quote saying, "Amen." Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So <laughs> that's how they build up to this final one that we eventually will get to and I'll discuss in more detail. But essentially the doxology, the doxology uh, in favor of the Savior and the pronouncements of glory and all these other things are well deserved after you consider his love for us and what because of his love he did for us and his making it possible for us to become like him that is we can become kings and queens priests and priestesses for generation upon generation the ages of ages that's what we're talking about is this concept that we can be blessed in one generation or another and that's a very very powerful it's an impressive doctrine uh, it uh, it really goes to the, uh, the essence of the gospel and what is done for us through the atonement of Jesus Christ, through his cleansing power that washes us and looses us from sins and makes us able to become kings to the, uh, the king of kings and queens to the king of kings. And so uh, if you uh, think about this doctrine, I, I find it very exhilarating and uh, I hope that you do too because it's a very, very powerful motivation for us to live our lives in conformity with the teachings of the gospel so that we can achieve all that ultimately God wants for us to achieve because his work in glory is to uh, bring about the immortality and eternal life and of man. And eternal life in this context means exactly what we're talking about. It means to become like God, to become a king and a queen ourselves as he is a king and our heavenly mother is a queen. And so these are the doctrines and that's what's taught clearly here in these verses in uh, the book of Revelation. So uh, next Saturday uh, we'll uh, continue with our podcast where we will get our first introduction to the second coming. Uh, so John doesn't waste any time about getting right to the essence of what is found in the book of Revelation, which is a book that is ultimately about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And I look forward to seeing you again next week.